0: Good morning and welcome back. As we continue in our worship service here today, I invite you to grab a copy of God's Word, whether it's electronic or a book, Uh, we're going to dig into God's Word today and uh, excited to hear what God has to say. And so we've been doing a a study through the book of Habakkuk called Hope for Dark Days, and really trying to learn how do we handle the evil days that so many times surround us? How how could we be be prepared for dark days particularly when evil seems to be prevailing. Do you ever feel like evil is winning? And when you feel that way, what kind of emotions come up from inside you? Do you get angry when you see evil winning? I know sometimes I do. Do you get depressed when you see evil winning? I know I do. There's many times I just want to give up. One of those times was when I uh, heard that a ministry mentor of mine had taken a massive moral failure. Uh, it was a couple years ago, and we were, we were just beginning to introduce a song at our church called, This We Know. And we, we sang, this we know, we will see the enemy run. And it didn't feel like the enemy was running. It felt like the enemy was winning. It felt like we were having to retreat and run away from the, from the enemy. This we know, we will see the victory come. And it didn't feel like victory, it felt like defeat. And tears would stream down my face as we would sing, we hold on to every promise because you're unfailing and we trust you. Because it didn't seem like those things were actually true. You see, this was a man who, who had taught me so many different things about ministry, and much of who I am as a pastor is a result of him, and, and he was a good friend and and just somebody who I could rely on. And then this this massive failure happened and, and it seemed like it was evil was winning. How about you? Do you ever have moments like that? Maybe you've seen a coworker cheat and they're the one that gets promoted. Maybe we just see something in society around us. We see how powerful politicians steal money and, and get away with it. Maybe it's something very close to us. Somebody who was seemingly to be a friend, but their gossip has destroyed our relationship. Now everybody is against you and everybody believes them and doesn't believe you. And, and when those things happen, we just inside of us naturally, it just kind of wells up from within us. We say, that's not right. That's not right, God. That's not the way it's supposed to be. The Bible is trying to teach us here in this study how to be prepared for dark days. As we see Habakkuk wrestle with God, we learn how to faithfully wrestle with God. As we hear that God says, wait by faith, we we are learning how to wait by faith. But what One thing that makes waiting so hard is when it seems like evil is winning. So today, I want us to see that evil doesn't win. And the title of the message is, Darkness Doesn't Win. In that, I want us to see really the main idea that's shaping what we do today is that I can have hope because darkness doesn't win. God wins. His justice and mercy are sure. But, but I need to show you that from God's word because it, 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 while it's a little bit exciting and I want to believe that to be true, I, I need to see it from God's word to, to help me align my experiences that I have even right now. And so we've been doing a, a study through the book of Habakkuk. I encourage you to turn there if you're not already. And you, we saw in the first section that Habakkuk is complaining to God. He's crying out to God because of sin and injustice in his own community in Judah. God answers him and he says, You're gonna, I'm going to answer you in a way that you don't expect. I'm going to bring the Chaldeans. The Babylonians are going to come and they're going to conquer Judah as my discipline for Judah. In that way. And Habakkuk is like, wait a second, God, that's even more confusing. Uh, I, and he begins to wrestle and he says, God, I thought you were holy and just and eternal. How could you, in that kind of characteristic, allow these things to happen? That doesn't make sense. It feels like evil is winning. And God has said then, Habakkuk and the nation, you need to trust me. You need to have faith. You need to be patient and wait. Wait. And today, God continues to answer. His answer to wait was part one of his answer. Today, we see the second part of his answer, and we see that God says, I have a plan. I have a plan for the Chaldeans. I have a plan for Judah, for you, Habakkuk. I have a plan. I'm going to denounce that people who I am using for this purpose, the Babylonians, and I'm going to pronounce judgment against them. And that's going to help me become hopeful because even though it seems like evil's winning, we're going to hear God say, It's not winning. I'm in control. This is my plan. This is what I'm going to do. But it's also going to show us that dark days reveal darkness inside of me. And that darkness has to be dealt with just as well as the darkness that comes from the Babylonians in this particular text. So let me read for us these verses today. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 4 to 20 is what we're going to look at here this morning. Follow along in your copy of God's Word. God continues his answers and says to Habakkuk, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him, and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnants of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence of the earth to cities and to all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your own life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, Is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink! You pour out your wrath and make him drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink! yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around you and utter shame will come upon your glory. Then the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. I oftentimes struggle with, with poetry. Poetry is really not my cup of tea, if you will. I don't know if anybody else maybe struggles to understand poetry, but even when we struggle with poetry, and this is a very poetic passage and how this has been communicated, it, what happens in poetry is many times it paints a more full picture than just the basic lines of the drawing beforehand. You, you, when you know the boundaries, the, the beauty of the of the of the poetry really begins to come forth. And, and God is saying here, I have a plan and therefore there's hope for you. And I want to show that to you by drawing some clarity to the line so that you can see what God is uh, doing here. Let's start with this here this morning. Number one, darkness doesn't win. God's justice confronts it. Notice we're saying that because of God's justice and, and, and he, he acting as a judge that the darkness is not going to win. That's what we're going to see here. The, the idea, though, takes a little bit of work because we don't often like the idea of God as a wrathful judge. And yet as you read this passage, you see very clearly that he is very much judging it's not popular to talk about God uh, in this way. We just, many times we want to talk about the positive attributes of God, but many people being spiritual know of God and know that there's even this element and this part of Him where it's not just that He's loving and acceptable and, and, and able to be appeased. There, there's something more. There's, there's a wrathful, there's a judge, judgment side of Him. So when we, but, but that's okay, because when we hear of injustice, when we hear of something that has been done that's wrong, when there's violence and oppression and exploitation, we cry out for justice. So though we don't always like to think about God as a judge, we know that we need this because we cry for justice all of times. When we, when we cry for justice, we want the victims to be freed and to be healed and, and we want perpetrators to be punished. I mean, the best stories are always that the good guy, he gets freed and he's, and he wins, and, and the bad guy loses and is destroyed. But we have to realize that we can't have justice without a judge. We, we do need someone to decide right and wrong. And in this passage, God is very much the judge. And he's declaring where the boundaries are, what, what's right and what's wrong. And, and he shows us here in, the, in what's called five woes. And notice we, we saw this word woe five different times as we read the passage. And, and really, it means this. It means two things. First of all, it's a de- declaration of the wrong that has been done. There's also a second part where it's a declaration of judgment on the one who did the wrong. So, so when God says woe to something, he's saying this is wrong, and, and, and there's judgment for those who are actually perpetrating that wrong. Now, this is, there, there's an important distinction I want you to make here at the beginning, and we're going to talk about it at the end as well. And that is this, Habakkuk and, his, and the people of Judah are being disciplined by God, by, by God having them conquered by the Babylonians. But but that's different, Uh, their pain and their suffering, in the midst of that is God's discipline out of love. There's something different when there's judgment. God does not, if you'll notice, pronounce a woe on his people. He, He pronounces discipline, but not this woe, not this punishment. For those who are God's people, he disciplines in love. But for those who are not a part of his people, he pronounces woe. So look at me with me at this passage and look at the five different woes. And we we see this again through the poetry. We begin to see the the lines at the very center here. We see in verse six, woe number one uh, is a declaration against their greed, the Babylonians greed and their thievery, the, the fact that they were stealing. It says here that he heaps up what is not his own. They're taking what what does not belong to them and then they're they're stockpiling it. They're they're greedy about it. Notice the second woe in verse 9. It says that they are full of deception and manipulation as well as, secondly, self-protection. It says that, Woe to him who gets evil gain. They're getting it with deception and manipulation. And then it says that they're, they're, they're disadvantaging others so they could, they could be safe from the reach of harm in their own houses. There's self protection that's happening there. Here's the third woe. In verse 12, we see it Woe to him who builds a town with blood. This is the idea of injustice and inequity. This is violence against the poor and the weak and the vulnerable. So that you can advantage yourself that's injustice notice number four we see it in verse 15 he says woe to him who makes his neighbors drink and then to in order to gaze on their nakedness this is perversion and exploitation and then and when and god says listen when you exploit others for your own pleasure or for your for your own desires that's wrong and then in verse 19 we see the fifth woe where he says that they're creating their own gods to worship, and they're creating their own teachings, their own morals in doing so. and, and there's no profit in that because that's, the, the idols are teachers of lies. In all of this, when you put it together, what we see that is that God is saying that he, he's saying to the Babylonians, You thought you were taking from Judah and these nations that you were conquering, but they are your your debtors. Babylon is in debt to Judah and these countries and the creditors are going to come calling. Notice at the very beginning here, it says that that there's going to be these voices that cry out. The oppressed people are going to cry out against them. And God says, all that you have amassed from them will be taken from you. The, The plunderer will become plundered. And that's God's judgment being pronounced against them. Now, it's very easy to read this and say, go get them, God. <laughs> go get them. That's not right. You're doing the right thing, God. And it's easy to read a passage like this and to disassociate ourselves from it. We, we give a weak cheer for justice when we see that God is going after things. But most of us we don't associate ourselves with Babylon. We, we read ourselves into the story as the hero. I recently heard somebody call this Disney princess theology, where everything's about you and everything always ends up happily ever after at the end. And, and when we read a text like this, we, we only see these are the bad guys and, and that's not us. We're, we're the good guys in here. We always read a text like this. We're not Babylon. We're not Nazi Germany. We're not Imperial Japan. We're not the bad guys. But God is showing Habakkuk something very important here. He, he's trying to show us something very important here. He, he's trying to show us here that the woes, the, the, these pun, pun, declarations of punishment, are, are the, the fruit of something deeper going on within the Babylonians and within us. There is sin below the sin. There's there's not just the behavior of sin, but there's the heart of sin underneath it that needs to be dealt with. So the fruit of sin is the result of a deeper sin need, a heart issue that's within us. So, what's at the root? Well, Habakkuk actually tells us that it's two things. The, the, the five woes are, are, are sandwiched between two bigger problems. It's a woe sandwich, if you will. The, the kind of bookends that, that kind of support the, what God is saying here in the middle and why He's giving them punishment. He, he's actually trying to reveal that there's this heart issue that is going on. There's a root issue that's going on. And when you understand, when you don't read a Disney princess version of the Bible, you begin to look at it and say, how does this reflect me? Even in these all this darkness, we begin to look at and see that there's two root issues that impact and affect every person from every nation in every culture of the world. And we must acknowledge that even if darkness, even, even if darkness doesn't win, I'm affected infected by it. Darkness doesn't win, but I'm infected by it. I mean, we're hearing this good news that God's justice is going to come and it's going to take care of, it's going to confront evil uh, in, that's in the world, that's in the dark days. But, but then we begin to realize, wait a second, the evil, the, the fruit of evil, well, that might be, the fruit might even be fruit in my own life. I might actually fall into one of these categories. And for sure, what we're going to see is that every one of us is infected At the core, we're rotten, just like the Babylonians were. We see this starting in verse 4. We see that it says, notice, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. There's this puffed up nature. There's another word for that. Notice in verse 5 it says, An arrogant man is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Sheol was the the place of the dead. And and so it's the idea of as wide as hell. And and it never has enough. And he's gathering for himself. There's this idea of selfishness. Say it this way. I am infected with pride. That's what Habakkuk and God is pointing out here. Pride is this puffed up, arrogant, never at rest, greedy, always about my own stuff, God is saying, why is Babylon stealing and hoarding and unjust and violent and perverse and conquering, but always still empty and never satisfied? God is saying that at the core they are proud and they are arrogant and they are empty. Verse 16 actually expands on this a little bit further. And and in that it says um, that they're looking for their own glory. It says, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. They're, they're, they're looking for glory, but it's going to turn into shame. Their thirst is for glory. And, and that's this idea of, uh, the idea of glory of this weightiness or, or significance. But they get shame instead. This is so important because we all want glory. We are all driven trying to find a, a place where we matter where we have authority and power, where we can be self-sufficient. These are all issues of of glory for ourselves. And we fall into the temptation of Eden's serpent, serpent, just like Adam and Eve, when they heard, you can be like God. You can can be God-like. We fall for that. And this is what is driving Babylon to steal and to kill and to destroy and conquer and exploit. And it's what drives you and me too. This is the problem. We want to be successful. We want to be pretty and smart. We want to be independent or we want to fit with the group really well. It's fascinating. There was a an interview that has captured, long captured my attention that was done in the 1980s in Vanity Fair. I, I wasn't really reading that at that point, but I have seen it since. And uh, one of the most famous celebrities in the world ever was commenting at the beginning of her career. She was talking about why she was trying to seek fame and accomplishment, and, and Madonna said this. She admitted, I don't really feel special. I'm out there trying to achieve fame because, she said this, when I achieve a new level, level of celebrity, I feel special. But then it goes away, and I have to reach even further. Isn't that a description of the emptiness of, of, of trying to get glory for yourself? Likewise, uh, uh, in, in that magazine was uh, uh, an interview with Chris Evert, the, the tennis star, from the, the woman's tennis star from the, and champion from, from that era as well. And she was talking about why she was driven to be the best. And she said this, winning made me feel pretty. It means this, she was trying to win and and we got to think about what of our motivations for life, okay? Because she was insecure and trying to cover herself with honor and trying to feel beautiful and significant. Madonna, Chris Everett, the Babylonians, you and I, us, are trying to fill ourselves with things other than God, things things that God created instead of God himself. A couple weeks ago, we learned that the treasure in the dark is God himself, but we're not looking for God himself. We're looking for the things he created. And the truth is that apart from Christ, we are all empty and longing for glory. We're addicted to the crowd. We, We strive for the compliments We we are trying to fill things in our life to caress our own egos. We long to cover ourselves with honor, to feel like we matter, to be noticed and to be respected. When we are empty and longing for glory, there is no end to how we will use people for our own means, for our identity, for our need for power, for our need for comfort for our desire for control, we will use and disadvantage and and act unjustly to others to fill ourselves with this thing. And the Bible is telling us that, that the reason for this is because we have pride within us. We're seeking our own glory. And when there's an entire culture that's filled with people like this, there's all kinds of evil that results. What I'm trying to get you to see here is that the same things that were driving the Babylonians that ultimately ended up in God's punishment against them, the same thing that the Babylonians were being driven by are the things that you and I are driven by. That's what the text is teaching us here today. That's what the Bible throughout is teaching us. Every human heart has all the ingredients necessary to build this kind of wickedness. I know you might be thinking, Pastor, I, I would never do that. I, I, I could never manipulate somebody like this. I, I could never abuse somebody or take advantage of them or exploit them in these ways. And perhaps you're just a bit naive in your understanding of your capacity for evil. The seeds are in all of us to grow this kind of terrible fruit. I mean, We just have to look through history, just, just a short look. To be able to see that there are all sorts of image bearers of God who under the right conditions turn into dastardly wicked people. And the seeds for that are in every single one of us. I mean, do you see yourself here? Do you see yourself in this text? Do you see your capacity? Not just your capacity, but the ways you've already perhaps lived in these ways. This is what is under all the darkness in the world. When we talk about facing dark days, we're not just talking about things that happen from outside of us, but maybe most importantly, we're talking about the darkness that is the result of what is inside of us. We have a pride to want to be God. And we're we're chasing after that because there's the emptiness of being unable to actually obtain that. So pride is one piece of what we're calling the woe sandwich. It's one of the underlying reasons why there's these, these multiple sins that are being called out by God. But there's a second piece that goes together with that, and, and that's the piece of idolatry. I am infected with idolatry. In verses 18 and 19, uh, Habakkuk kind of calls this out and shows us this. It says, What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. We we see here that, that idolatry is the pursuit of other things. Anything other than God that we are pursuing is potentially an idol. It's potentially something that we place as greater importance than God Himself. So you remember in chapter one when Habakkuk was talking and and complaining about the Babylonians the second time to God, and he talked about how uh, they scooped them scooped up his nation like fish, and then they praised their own nets in the catching that they were doing. And it's in ver- in chapter one verse. Uh, verse 14, it says, You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet and rejoices in his glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net. He worships, worships it, right? And he makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. What we see here is that the Babylonians are going to believe in their military might and their their governmental power and the conquering ability that they have. They're going to worship themselves and their ability to do these things. And listen, what happens in us as well, whenever we have some sort of perceived success in life, many times we make that the thing we continue to push because it's it's become an idol to us. We think that, that we're going to trust in that rather than God himself. Habakkuk has seen already that the Babylonians were an idolatrous people. They put their trust and their hope and their confidence in their own means of success. I mean, is that possibly true of you today? The reality is, any one of us who is not centered on the glory and grace of God through Jesus Christ will be centered on an idol. You, You either have God... At the center of your life, or you have an idol at the center of your life. Now listen, I understand. Maybe not a carved image. We're talking about a heart idol. We're talking about something that that you are pursuing because you're trying to fill the emptiness that God has placed in you that you're supposed to use to seek Him. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 actually talks about this. It, one of the most important verses for you to understand about God and how He's created you to long for Him is Ecclesiastes 3.11 that says this. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart. Eternity meaning that longing for God, that longing for, the, for, for all of Him, and He's too big to be compi- confined by time, so the, the, the writer uses this idea of eternity. He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. In other words, God places within you a desire for him, but an inability to find it in your own power and ways. You have to do it His way to find satisfaction and fulfillment. And so there's so many people running around empty and trying to fill themselves with all sorts of things that are, are, C.S. Lewis called it, the God-shaped hole. We're trying to fill that God-shaped hole with things that don't fit the hole because we are trying to find things outside of God. And that's not how God designed it. We're longing for something greater than ourselves and we devote ourselves to that thing and it becomes an idol. Let me maybe define what idolatry is even a little bit further here today. It's when I take a good good thing and I make it an ultimate thing. So yes, there's carved images that are idols that we actually assign, but, but many times the Word of God is more concerned with what's going on in our heart, not what's on the exterior. And so there's these heart idols that, are, that we grab onto. We did a whole series above all else this summer, and you remember the iceberg with the tentacles and, and describing the heart and, and the things that we try to grab onto are the idols. And many times we make a religion of our own making believing Satan that we don't need God to do these things. We can do that for ourselves. And so that's why Habakkuk here calls out the idea of of taking a wooden thing and say, awake, and a stone thing, arise. And that how can it teach? Because you're making it for yourself. So why? Why do we do this idolatry thing? We do it because of our pride, for sure. We take success and being pretty or smart, or being part of the group, we take it and make it ultimate to validate our existence. We, we make it the thing that we find our significance in or our security in. We make these things ultimate and then we'll do anything to try to achieve them. So I remember when I was in kindergarten or prep senior, and uh, there was a friend of mine, I, he was my best friend, Mark was his name, and Mark and I did everything together. And, and uh, one time there was going to be a, a, a special book sale, uh, new books that were being sold very cheaply and, and uh, we got to preview it in class and then we had to come back that night and, and with our parents to make the purchases. And there was this whole book fair that was going on and my friend wanted a book that was just this uh, story about an American football team. And I remember looking at it and not being super impressed with it, but I saw him and a number of other guys. They were so excited. They all wanted this particular book. And so when I got there, I rushed over to the book, and and I found that there was one left, and I grabbed it for myself and took it, and my parents bought it for me, and then my friend, my best friend Mark, walked in late, later than the rest of us. He walked in, and he was looking for the book, and I saw him in tears because he didn't have the book that he wanted. I didn't even want the book, but I took it because I had within me this idea that if I was, I could be part of the cool kids. I, I could, I, we all wanted this book, that if I had this book, it would mean that I was somebody special. And I took it because it was an idol, because it had become something of greater value than, I didn't even really like the book. But I, I saw the value in others, and so I took it for myself. This idolatry thing is why we bend and break the rules to get ahead, because success is an idol. It's why we diet and exercise and overspend on beauty products and personal products, perhaps even give our body away, because we want to feel pretty. It's why we cheat on an exam to get a better grade, because we want to appear smart It's why we go along with the family's wishes instead of standing for what we believe in because we don't want to be ashamed apart from the group. And when there's a culture that's filled with idolatrous people, it destroys the societies. We begin to idolize those who agree with us and we begin to demonize those who are against us or who see the other things. And then we point fingers at each other and begin to blame But Christianity says something really important to understand. Christianity says the problem is not them. The problem is me. It's my heart. It's my pride. It's my idolatry that's at the root of darkness. The cause of dark days in every place, in every time, in every culture, is the darkness that is within each one of us. The pride and the idolatry that is many times at the very ground floor of all the sinful actions and thoughts and desires that we have. It affects everybody. And there is no ability to flatten this curve. It infects every single human heart. Now, That's a little depressing. What do we do with this? I mean, what do we do with a passage like this? How do we make sense of this passage where there's God is wrathful and he's sending his judgment and we kind of cheer for that, but then we realize, actually, we are the ones that need to be judged too. How do we read this passage and understand what God is calling for us? Where is the hope that is found in this? Well, let me tell you a story. I, the other night, I was watching a movie called *Castaway* with my youngest son, and it's interesting. Over the period of time, we'd watched *Castaway* a number of times, but for some reason, we'd only seen it from the middle of the movie onwards. Uh, he had never seen it from the very beginning, and so he was like, "Dad, can can I see the beginning of the movie? Like, why is the guy even on the island?" And so we watched the movie from the beginning and, and it was so interesting. When, when the crash happens, when the, when the airliner uh, airplane crashes into the ocean and he, he's able to have, hang on to the life raft and, and he gets into the life raft and he's just exhausted, the, mo- the next scene in the movie, it, he's actually hearing the part of the life raft deflate as, they, as it crashes against a rock. You see, he thought he was in the middle of the Pacific Ocean but somehow the currents had pushed him up against an island and it's fascinating as the raft is bumping against the rock and, and it deflates a little bit. He kind of looks up, and in the midst of this pitch black ocean, he realizes he's against the rock. And then a flash of lightning in the middle of the storm appears. And just for a moment, he gets to see the light. He gets to see there is something around him. And, and we see the flash of lightning once or twice, we, a couple different times. And the next thing we know, he's, he's on the beach once sunlight has appeared. In the midst of pitch black dark, he sees flashes of light that reveal hope. And today, I'm trying to show you flashes of light of hope to even help deal with dark days, but in particular, to do the work of dealing with the darkness that is within us. Hope does not result from God's justice alone. We're condemned if that's the case. But hope does come when He covers us with His mercy. Write this down, number three this morning. Darkness doesn't win. God's mercy covers me. We see two flashes of of light in this passage, in verse 14 and in verse 20. Uh, Start in verse 20 to begin with. We see at the end of the passage, it says, But the Lord is in His holy temple. That's a flash of light for us to understand here, that the Lord is in control. He's right where he's supposed to be. He's ruling and he's reigning and he's in control in the midst of the dark days that Habakkuk is facing. The, the, the exile and the conquered by Babylon and, and even in the judgment of Babylon, where's the hope? And, and God is right where he's supposed to be. He's in control in the middle of the dark day that you're facing right now. In the middle of the darkness that you're seeing in the midst of your own heart. He's right where he's supposed to be. And in that, it helps us understand the knowledge of who He is, which is the second flash of light in this passage. Look at verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now remember, we've defined hope as a life-shaping certainty about the future. God is in control and he's going to accomplish his purposes and the weight of his character we can depend upon in the middle of even hearing the the woes against Babylon and seeing the darkness in our own heart. The reason is because Habakkuk is actually quoting from the book of Isaiah this verse. He's not the first one that wrote these words. If we look at Isaiah chapter 11, we see this. And I would invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 11 right now. I'm going to read verses 1 to 10. Just some of the context here. We see that Isaiah is writing in a, in a kind of a similar time. A couple of hundred years before Habakkuk, when the king has just died. There's an enemy army bearing down the Assyrian Empire at this time is bearing down to threaten the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember how the nation is divided and Israel is the first to be taken into exile by the Assyrians. And then Habakkuk is writing a couple hundred years later with Judah and the Babylonians. right? But what we see here is that dark days have appeared in Isaiah. And there's anxiety and fear and uncertainty in the world. And they're wrestling with what is happening. And this is what Isaiah records. He says this. Verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now remember who Jesse is. Jesse was the father of King David, right? And so we're looking at the father of King David, who is a really important king in the nation of Israel. Let's keep going. It says... and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now, now who do you think it's talking about here? Who who are these verses r- prophesying about? You know who it's going to be, right? It's it's going to be Jesus. It then goes on to describe how just kind of a reversal of this world and a putting right of the world. It's described as this in verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. The weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. There it is. But keep reading one more verse. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Isaiah gets this vision to speak to the people and it says God's going to send a king like David. He's going to rule forever and bless the entire earth and the spirit's going to be on him and he's going to bring justice. He's going to undo all the Babylonians' guilt and bring justice and equity and peace. He's going to rule and his rule shall be marked by the word shalom, which means peace with God and others. And not just the absence of conflict, but the flourishing of, of beautiful things, as, as the uh, text even talks about with the animals there. How is he going to do that? It says, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That God, the weight of his glory is going to cover over us. And that's how He's going to accomplish those things. Notice we're going to rest in His glory, which is what we all long for. It says, uh, um, uh, of Him all the nations shall acquire. His resting place shall be glorious. Only glory that satisfies our soul is the glory that comes from God. And He's going to do that here. So those who surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ will be immersed in that glory. How does that happen? Well, it happens because Jesus, the Messiah, has taken the woes that you and I deserve for our pride and our idolatry, our thirst for glory, our our thirst to fill that emptiness. When He takes those woes upon Himself, we receive His blessing. Notice, If God only came to give justice, it would destroy us all because we are at the root. We are all shamed by the pride and idolatry that's within us. But with justice comes mercy. Do you hear that? With justice comes mercy. God's justice is real. He's going to set all things in order, including your sin and my sin. But there's going to be mercy. Mercy is not being given what you deserve. He's going to cover you with mercy because He made Jesus drink the cup of justice for you and I. Jesus came as the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 11, 1 to 10 here. He was the shoot from the stump of Jesse and the root of Jesse. Notice, shoot from the stump that's the bottom of it and then and then the root of jesse at the very underneath all of that both the root and the shoot are being talked about here jesus is the beginning and the end he's the alpha and the omega he's the completeness of what is needed here jesus lived the in holiness he lived with justice and equity and service to others he was never self-serving or prideful or arrogant or abusive or exploitive he is the judge. So when Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 16, says that you will have your fill of shame instead of glory, drink yourself and show that you are uncircumcision, the cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory, God is saying to them that the cup of His wrath is going to be poured out to them here. The cup of God's wrath, the cup is the symbol of God's wrath. Remember when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he asked God the Father to let the cup of his wrath pass from him. But instead of letting it pass from him, he drank the cup of God's wrath. He drank what was intended for us the punishment that we deserve was poured out on the cross and Jesus Christ was cut down as he took God's justice in our place so that we could have his mercy. In his resurrection then, Jesus secured the promise of the coming kingdom and and in that kingdom, God's glory will overshadow all darkness. And it's the promise of that day that gives hope for now and today hope for no matter how long and how dark things are here on this earth in this moment if we will cling to the promise of God that he will deal with all the of the injustice and pain and suffering and sorrow that we currently are experiencing that he will make all things new and that his glory will cover over our sorrows then no matter what the dark days are that you are facing And no matter what the darkness is that is revealed within you, we can put our hope that there is no more wrath for us when we put our trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus took every last drop of the cup that that was supposed to be meant for us. And the only thing then that's left is, here on earth, loving discipline. And, And that means that there's hope for even the worst of us. Even those who are most honest Earlier, when we saw the darkness within ourselves, we can see that we can make terrible choices in life due to our pride and our idolatry. Listen, I'm not saying we should go out and do that, but I'm saying if that happens, when that happens, we can really mess things up, but God will lovingly discipline us. He won't punish us. That's hope. That's good news. He's still on the throne. Ruling and reigning. And one day he's going to come and he's going to and make all the sad things come untrue. It says here that he, the earth, is going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The hope of that day should give us confidence to hope today for these things. I can have hope because darkness doesn't win. Darkness doesn't win because God's justice and mercy. Listen, he doesn't just forget all these things. He takes care of them through Jesus Christ and then doesn't give you what you deserve. That's mercy. He instead gives you Jesus so that we can one day have all of our dark days cared for and covered by him. Let me ask you a couple of questions to consider just in application here today. Maybe take a moment and think of them quickly. Just write down the first responses as I ask these questions and then come back to this later today or later this week and consider these things even further. Number one, where do I see pride and emptiness still driving my choices in life? Would you have the courage to to look for that? Would you have the courage to ask God, God? where, where do I see pride? Th- this pursuit of wanting to be significant or successful or pretty or smart, where do I see that driving me and maybe driving me into all sorts of really sinful things? God, would you show me where I stumble? Question number two, what is God revealing to me about potential idols in my heart? I mean, even right now. Can you see that there's something that you pursue? It might be comfort. And in your pursuit of comfort, you'll you'll give up on God. You'll do sinful things to just get comforted. Maybe it's control. I'm going to do it my way and, and I'm not going to let God tell me what to do. And so we do all sorts of sinful things to try to gain control over our lives. There's many ways that that might look. What is God revealing about potential idols? And then number three, How can the promise of future glory deal with darkness in me today? As as your heart is revealed and you realize there's darkness that needs to be taken care of. I need to deal with the darkness that's in my own life. I see the pride. I see the idolatry. I see not just the root of those things. I see the fruit and the sinful things that maybe outside appear. How, How does the promise of future glory that the weightiness of God will cover all of us, how does that bring you to a spot where you say, I surrender to the Lord, and I put my hope and trust in Him, and I'm going to believe in this? All of these questions should point you to the gospel. It should point you to do the gospel dance. We've learned this year the gospel dance is a three-step dance. It's to repent, and then to believe, and then to live loved and sent. So what do you need to repent of today? What what step in that dance do you need to take? Remember, the gospel dance is not just taking three steps and being done. It's three steps repeated over and over in life. So repent, believe, live. Repent, believe, live. What do you need to repent of today that has its roots in pride or idolatry potentially in your life? And then once you've repented of it, how do you need to believe that, that God is both judged but, but full of mercy and, and taking care of the problem through Jesus Christ? What truths and promises do you need to hold on to today to believe those things are true about you so that your identity is shaped by the mercy that God has covered you with, not by the striving in your own power to try to make things right. And that will lead you to live loved and sent. What are the Ways that you can obediently and out of a love for the Lord just walk in the newness of life that He has given to you. In this, we know that the enemy is going to run. Darkness doesn't win, God wins. We know that victory does come even if we're not experiencing it right now, even if we're experiencing all sorts of darkness, darkness because of myself or darkness because of what people have done to me. I'm in dark days because of myself and others' darkness. But I know the victory's coming. I know that there can be hope, that there can be this confident assurance of the future. And so I can live for Him. I'm going to hold on to every promise that He's given to me because He's unfailing and we can trust Him And we can believe that what he says is best and true. Let's pray and ask God for that, even as the worship team will then remind us of these things. Let's go before the Lord right now. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth that darkness doesn't win. God, that's a great victory banner. Lord, we praise you that darkness doesn't win. We believe that darkness doesn't win. Even in the darkest of moments, Lord, you give us flashes of hope that we can see. Darkness doesn't win. Lord, would you help us to live from the victory of that? The victory that you've won for us. Lord, we don't, haven't done anything for it. But Lord, we're putting our trust that you have covered us with mercy. And so Lord, we put ourselves into the place where we say we trust you. We will live for you. We'll do what you say. When you say wait patiently, we'll do so. When you say wait with faith, Lord, give us faith. Lord, when when we don't know what your answer is, Lord, we'll still trust you are good and eternal and you are God and you know what's right and you're in your throne room, you're in the temple. We trust you. God, would you build our faith and belief in this, and help us to live accordingly? Would you help us to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord? This we know, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Would you fill us with it? We pray in your Son's name. Amen.